So tonight's uh, talk has a title called Nothing to Hold On To. Nothing to Hold On To. And it reflects the Buddhist teaching on change. The Buddhist um, title, his, his, um, his single word for his reflections on change is this word, Anicca. Anicca. And it is one of the three qualities of existence in this realm, this Anicca, the truth of Anicca, this quality that everything is always changing. And as you can imagine, if everything's always changing, how do we hold on to it? No matter how hard we hold on, it changes in our palms. And this is a dilemma for us all that is existential in nature. That is, it's a priority anything you might believe or anything you might do because it's just always happening. Just in the time I've been speaking these two or three minutes, there's been so many changes in your body. You've had all these different thoughts. You've heard all of these different things. Your body's had all these uh, different experiences from outside, from the air, from the, the sounds of other people too in the room. It's a constant stream. It can take some um, extended period of examination to have a direct experience of the Nietzsche rather than a conceptual understanding of it. But we can from our own everyday experience and from our understanding, reflect it and increase the likelihood of having this direct experience, this direct realization of the truth of it. So as we, as we look into this, we start to understand that it is a key insight into the Buddha's teaching on how to find the end of suffering is understanding the nature of Anicca. Because without having a really full uh, understanding, acceptance of it, we will do things in our minds that keeps us in the cycle of suffering. And when we look at something like this, we don't have to always be so morose about it or like, oh no, there's Anicca. Because a lot of things that change are good. We're quite happy for an ache to go away, for a situation in our lives that was quite difficult to change. So it's, it's neither good nor bad in that sense. It's just a quality. It's just a quality of experience that everything always changes. This is a poem uh, from, I did a day long on change just recently here. I, each year I do a poetry day and I create a little booklet of poems around a particular theme and everyone who comes to these day longs that wants to reads one of the poems. So we have, you know, a hundred voices reading these various poems. It's quite stirring. And this, this poem is called Feedback and it's from Billy Collins. Feedback. The woman who wrote from Phoenix after my reading there to tell me they were all still talking about it, just wrote again to tell me they had stopped. (laughs) 
Anicca. Anicca. And that response of, of amusement, of a kind of holding it lightly, that's a skillful means. Whether it's a change we want or not wanting. But to hold it lightly, to not uh, organize a, around a girding against the change or trying to push it through faster than it's unfolding in itself. Very wise to go with the unfolding of the change itself. When we understand this uh, truth, this uh, profound uh, teaching around Anicca, a number of things happens that are quite um, positive for us. One is that it lightens the burden of life because the ego starts to understand more clearly its proper role. The ego starts to, to have a sense of what it can affect and what it cannot affect and the way to affect it in a different way. This is not something that I can prove to you. It's something that you would have to uh, understand and experience for yourself as you start to look at your life from change as a phenomena rather than the particular narrative lines of any particular experience. So you're hungry and then you're not hungry because you had, had something to eat and then you're hungry again and you, you, you brushed your teeth yesterday, you got to brush your teeth again today. There's all of this flow of life. Something pleasant happens, something unpleasant happens. There's all this uncertainty. We, we learn how to meet that, to ride the waves of change in a way that gives us a sense of spaciousness and actually more choice as to our experience, to actually have more choice in terms of the sense of well-being around our experience. Across the board, across the board, the Buddha's understanding in this way is uh, uh, quite awesome. It's uh, astounding that someone so long ago could understand the human mind and how it related to experience and see so clearly how to make certain changes in perceptions, certain changes in intention, and bring about a profound change in well-being. A second thing that can occur when we more deeply understand this truth of Anicca is that it can stimulate our imagination at any level of experience so that we, we discover new attitudes uh, new thoughts about something that we may have struggled with over and over again, but we had fallen into a set pattern of how we react to it. But as we're seeing, oh, this is just change. This is just change. Yes, this change is happening because this boss is difficult or this, is, this, this new person in my life is very exciting. But if we're back in the phenomena, sitting back in the phenomena, oh, change is occurring in my life it brings up new possibility 
just in, in, in the knowing that, because ordinarily we get so close in, we grab hold of an experience, some experience in our life, that we don't really see that many possibilities. We have tunnel vision. We have funneled into this uh, preconceived, conditioned way of perceiving and having what is called mental impressions in Buddhism. So perception and mental impressions are two of the five characteristics of any moment. And that, that it, it doesn't really allow that much room. But as we step back in this more phenomenal way, we're able to see that more clearly. So tonight, I'd like us to reflect on three different aspects of change, of a Nietzsche, and um, see what we might learn that will actually be actable in our daily lives. So this uh, talk tonight is really aimed at living the Dharma in daily life. But it starts with the first thing we're going to look at, which is a Nietzsche in the context of the other two characteristics, which I will get to in a moment. And then secondly, we'll examine how failing to understand change causes stress and mental despair and unnecessary dissatisfaction. These are the, the, the... characteristics that make up what's called dukkha, distress, this unsatisfactoriness, the sense of dissatisfaction, unease in the moment, all because we don't have a, a wise relationship with the Nietzsche. And then the third thing we'll do tonight is ask ourselves if there's nothing to hold on to, if everything's constantly changing, how do we orient? How do we live our lives? What are our lives about if everything is always changing? So uh, this first uh, reflection in terms of a Nietzsche is part of the three characteristics. The Buddha taught that everything in this realm is, is, uh, is um, characterized by these three qualities. One is that it's changing. Anything that comes into existence is changing. Anything. And ultimately going away. Another way that he said it is anything that's made up of parts disappears. It's always changing. Then it disappears. So that's, that is a Nietzsche. The second quality of everything in this realm is that it has uh, uh, some flavoring, some element of dukkha, this unsatisfactoriness, this suffering, this unease, this uncertainty, dissatisfaction, unreliability, that there is in the flow of life in this moment uh, a kind of struggle, a kind of friction, a kind of um, difficulty. Now, and, and the, this dukkha is made up of a kind of dukkha that's physical and emotional pain. That's pretty easy to recognize as dukkha. But it's also made up of change itself. Because if we have something we really like, it will go away. Or we will lose interest in it. You have this favorite dessert, 
and then one day you just lose the taste for it. Or you have, you have, a, you have a really good friend that you spend a lot of time with and they move to another part of the country. Things are always changing so that you can never go, oh, I've really got this just the way I want it. I don't have to think about that anymore. I've really got the friends. They're really good friends. They're here for me and all this. And then it still changes. Or even something as simple as like, oh, I've just brushed my teeth. I've really got these clean teeth. It changes. You've got to brush them all over again. And that constancy, that little friction of life has a cost to it in terms of our well-being because it's got this movement to and from. And even at the most subtle level, when our mind is most still, we can see that that movement creates a kind of disquiet in the stillness of the mind. Anytime the mind is moving out to objects, there's this kind of disquiet. So Nietzsche is very profound in terms of causing uh, a kind of suffering. And then likewise, the third quality of, of this realm of existence is so many things that we take to be self are not self. So what we own is not self. Our history is not self. Our, our thoughts are not self. Not self is defined by something that would be permanent and in our control. That there's nothing that is permanent and in our control. And this too is very, very disquieting to the ego. Whether the ego is reflecting on it or not, that sense of, well, like, uh, this is who I am, at least right now. But if we really look at this moment, we can't find a there there in this moment. It's always made up of these changing parts. Very uneasy. So if you think of the poor ego and what it has to go through in daily life, first there's all of this emotional and physical discomfort, small or large. Sometimes the ego can uh, rearrange things, but how often can you not? So you get into traffic. You go, oh, this is not comfortable. Get out of my way, traffic. Doesn't happen, does it? The same with a toothache or um, uh, being bored often, or whatever it is that is bothering us in the moment. There is th- there's this inability to, uh, to control the physical and the emotional pain. People hurt our feelings whether we want our feelings hurt or not. People make us angry whether we want to or not. People do things that make us afraid or distressed or despairing for others. Or there's injustice in the world, all sorts of injustice in the world. And we can't control it. Thus the emotional pain and the physical pain of all the changes in the body and the various kinds of things that get inflicted on this body. So that's a fact. That's a fact. It's like this. So when we see that, uh, we then see we have to find a better way to live, as the Buddha said in one of the suttas, to find a better way to live. And then uh, the, this, this quality of, of change, not leading just to dukkha, not just to the, to the, uh, the sense of anatta, that there's, everything's always changing, but that in, in its whole, it creates this, th- these three characteristics 
create a kind of um, unsteadiness. An unsteadiness when we're looking out at trying to get things the way we want them. Whether we're trying to get the things that we are, are like and trying to hold on to them, justify having them and get more of them, or whether we're trying to avoid the things that are unpleasant to us, or if we have some unpleasant going on to get rid of it as quickly as possible and as uh, less pain as possible as we get rid of it, it creates an unsteadiness when that is the level on which we're existing, when that's our orientation. This, uh, this uh, reactivity around these three characteristics makes for a very uneven life, a life that does not have quiet or a kind of uh, innate well-being that is the, the well-being of our, of our natural state of mind-heart. It's called chitta. So this, uh, this, this uh, understanding of this gives us motivation to look for a better way to live. It motivates us to have a, a kind of constant awareness that this is the impersonal nature of change that's occurring right now, right now. And, uh, throughout the day, to notice this repeatedly and to say, oh, this is just a Nietzsche, rather than they shouldn't have done that. Did I do something wrong? Oh, this is so tiring. You know, it's just a Nietzsche. It's just a Nietzsche happening in this moment. In the Buddha's Four Noble Truths, this, uh, this truth of dukkha is the first of the noble truths. And then the second noble truth is that there is a cause of dukkha, and that is our clinging mind, our mind wanting it to be other than it is, that our mind is filled with various kinds of thirst, that we want this, we don't want that, we want to become this, we don't want to be that, that we want all the sense gates to our liking. And uh, we're trying to do that in the midst of this constant change. So how could we ever succeed if that's our strategy? How would that ever really bring something that is a continuity of spaciousness, a continuity of inner quiet, of well-being, some, some way of meeting life that could, could uh, not be so disturbed by the difficult? Because life stays difficult. So in the Buddha's teaching of these first two noble truths, the truth of dukkha and the truth that the cause of dukkha is our relationship to the dukkha, the cause of the suffering is our relationship to the dukkha. The dukkha itself is difficult, but it is our relationship, our trying to have it be other than it is that causes this extra layer of suffering in our life. So if you, have, if you have a body pain, it's got a certain degree of discomfort to it. But if you resist the fact that you have the body pain, if you're angry about it, if you don't think it's fair, if, you, if you're having all sorts of secondary response demanding it be other than it is, then that, that initial amount of discomfort gets greatly increased because it has a multiplying effect. So if you've got three degrees of pain, 
and seven degrees of resistance, you've got 21 degrees of suffering. It's not three and seven, it's 10. It's, 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 it really grows quite fast in that way. That's a rough formula. It's, don't go out and put that as an algorithm in your, your, your little app for suffering in life. If I have this... <laughs> so um, as, we, as we come to understand this, we get interested in our life in a different level, a different way. So we're interested in sense stimuli. When we want a pleasant from the eye gate, pleasant from the ear gate, taste, smell, touch, and, and our pleasant thoughts, we, we see that rather than investing so much in that, that we, to invest a, a significant portion of our attention into knowing itself, to knowing our experience. And this is where mindfulness comes in. Mindfulness, uh, which allows us to be present, allows us to know our experience. And the, the knowing of the experience, rather than being over on it, gives us some room, makes, makes the difficult less difficult, and makes the pleasant actually more accessible to us. So it's a double win either way. This is the great value of, of mindfulness. But mindfulness of these characteristics, particularly of Anicca, so that we don't... We don't uh, get swept away by the wanting mind or the aversive mind. We don't get swept away. There's a degree which we're, 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 we're sitting back in the knowing. There's room for experience to come and go as it will come and go. Otherwise, we believe moment to moment that this is going to keep lasting. I can't stand this pain. It's never going to end. But it's already changing. And it constantly changes. It may get worse. It may get better. It will change. This is so wonderful. This is so wonderful. And we can believe it, that it's so wonderful. I'm going to be happy forever. And then 10 minutes later, we're bored. <laughs> so we stay back in the knowing where we don't get invested in the mind's tendency to identify, become attached clean grasp and belief. Very practical. It's not a belief. These are teachings of how to live more wisely. It's not a belief. It's something we can see for ourselves. And when we do, it's uh, so, so useful. Change leads us to clean because we do want something to hold on to. And we mistakenly believe that if we just hold on the correct way, we can somehow control the conditions of our life and we can control how we relate to those conditions through just holding on, through clinging. This doesn't turn out to be very true when put to the test of life. We are always a little late 
getting to the experience in the first place. And what we bring to it in the way of what our strategies for maximizing well-being are investing in the very things that are going to disappear on us. So it, it always leaves this sense of dissatisfaction. We inherently know this because there's a kind of uh, uh, unease that we can see in our experience if we watch closely in the middle of doing it. Okay, here I'm doing something that I really think is going to work well for me. So is there any, any disquiet here, any unease with this? Maybe it's completing a project. Maybe it's uh, being involved and uh, a, a social cause that you really believe in, maybe it's been, uh, been uh, relating to your child or to your aging parent or, or, or to your, your significant other. So many times the way we are approaching a situation has in it this built-in dissatisfaction because there is clinging, there's grasping, there's a demand rather than a willingness to meet and respond with it as it is arising. I call it Dancing with Life and my book by the same name because that is what we're learning to do using the Buddhist teachings to dance with life in a way that brings this greater sense of well-being. As the ego ceases to thinking it can control everything, it loses some of its insecurity. And that is a very um, um, uh, wonderful thing when the ego stops thinking it has to do so much. Uh, Sometimes this happens because of our life experience. We just learn that, oh, I can only do so much. Whether you're raising a child, you realize there's only so much you can do. The child's going to be their own self or in relation to controlling your health, or controlling uh, a situation at work, or certainly uh, you know, the larger political issues in our society, the larger cultural issues in our society. We, we, sometimes by experience we learn. But it's another uh, level of wisdom when we see the lawfulness of what's underneath that. Because then we really know it's reliable. And we become more able to discern well, what can be done here and what cannot, what's a reasonable expectation and what's not. The strategy of, of getting what we want and keeping what we've got and justifying having it, of avoiding what we don't want and getting rid of what we don't want gets us pulled into this um, uh, kind of um, what we could call it um, an uneaseful relationship with our own life, our own experience. And we start to take birth repeatedly. We identify with, we believe over and over again, if I just find this parking place, I'm going to be so happy if I just find this parking place. We find that parking place and we're happy for a moment. And it's really great when we have good parking karma, right? Nobody objects to that. 
But then, oh, if I could just catch this elevator that's closing right now, I would just get, get into the office building before the elevator closes. There's going to be other elevators. But in that moment, that becomes everything. Or, now what am I going to have for lunch? I want to have something good for lunch. Does it really make that much difference if we have something good for lunch? Really? But we invest so much in it as though it's going to make all the difference in the world. And so as we start to see, because we're being mindful of this phenomena, we start to see the shortcomings of this. We, we start to see that uh, there is some uh, understanding that we've yet to experience directly. T.S. Eliot puts it this way. He says, there are three conditions which often look alike, yet differ completely, flourish in the same hedge row, attachment to self and to things and to persons. Attachment, this grasping, this wanting around this uh, nervousness about a nature. So attachment to self and to things and to persons. Detachment from self and from things and from persons. And growing between them in difference. So detachment from self, from things and from persons is this sitting back in the knowing. Having a level of, of emphasis on the knowing rather than on the narrative a certain degree of detachment, but not indifference. Attachment to self and to things and to persons, detachment from self and from things and from persons, and growing between them indifference, which resembles the others as death resembles life. Being between two lives, unflowering between the live and the dead nettle, for all of you guys, nettle or a flower. <laughs> this is the use of memory for liberation, not less of love, but expanding of love beyond desire. And so liberation from future as well as the past. So this is the, uh, the, uh, the, the interchange that starts to come. We're not indifferent to our lives. We care. But the caring takes on a larger sense than our own ego's immediate needs. Even though we're still interested in the ego's needs, we're interested in the body's needs, but there is a shift in the way it's perceived, the way the moment is interpreted, the way we relate to the moment. It's not indifference, it's not nihilism, it's not cynicism, but a change that allows it from being a grasping after things, a clinging to something that's, of course, constantly changing, to this new relationship to it. And that new relationship allows not less love. There's not less love when we let loose of some of our attachment, but there's actually more love. There's actually more caring. And this is the kind of caring where we're not haunted by the past, and we're not uh, fixated on the future. As we move to this attitude of knowing the truth of things, the past is seen in a different way. It's 
still the past. What was wrong about the past remains wrong, but our relationship to it is not this demand that it had been otherwise. We're much more able to be at ease with the past and learn from the past. And the future we understand to be something that we will affect insofar as we can, but we don't think we have to control it. We don't believe we're capable of controlling it. And therefore, there comes more ease with past and future. And we actually become wiser, more skillful in dealing with the past and the future. Clinging, grasping, any kind of tensing is not a wise strategy. This fixation is not wisdom. When we're, uh, I was, uh, before I ended up a Dharma teacher unexpectedly, I had been an entrepreneur for all of my adult life. And I worked very hard. I kept steady focus. But the obsession did not help. When I was worried, when I was trying to to, uh, force something before it was ready, those things didn't turn out. Rather, it was the steadiness of intention and the sustaining of attention that made the difference. Uh, People talk about uh, Steve Jobs and how obsessed he was in getting things perfect. Um, I would not describe him in that way, and I didn't know him well, but I knew him. I would say that he actually had these two characteristics that would have made him very... um, Uh, have a rich experience in meditation retreat. And that is that he had this ability to aim his attention on what he cared about and get others to go with him and paying attention to something. And then he could sustain his attention on it. In Buddhism, in Theravadan Buddhism, we call these two characteristics uh, Vataka and Vachara. And we learn it in in samadhi meditation, in concentration meditation. We learn to aim our attention at a single object and to sustain our attention on that object. We learn this in our samadhi practice, but then we utilize it in mindfulness so that we learn to sustain attention, sustain mindfulness, to aim, uh, to aim to have mindfulness and then to sustain mindfulness, and then to apply that in the form of attention on any object. So tonight we're aiming attention at change, at anicca, and we're sustaining our attention on anicca. In daily life, as you want to deepen, uh, get a wiser relationship with how you work with change in your life, you would do the same Thing. You would aim attention. I wish to understand attention, this change better, and I'm going to pay attention to it. And you sustain attention. A little fleeting, a little fleeting uh, moment of attention on it won't bring you wisdom. We have to dig in. We have to um, really surrender to it. But it's not hard. The way to get deeper into an experience is to touch it softly and patiently. And then gradually we feel it deeper and deeper. If you really want to know the feeling of your hand, squeezing it or pushing at it or pulling at it is not going to bring a deeper relationship. But if you just softly touch it, you'll first feel the the surface level of the skin. 
then you can actually feel that the, the middle level of the skin and even that the very uh, finest level inside of the skin. And then you can start to feel the bones. You can feel the movement of blood in the hand. You start to open the same with your lover, the same with uh, watching nature. It's the soft attention that actually penetrates experience. The soft attention requires making the contact and sustaining the contact. I would say that, um, that one, of the th- one of the things that's most overlooked about our practice in terms of people applying it to daily life is this ability to sustain attention in your life. As you practice here, whether it's on a day long or an evening class like this or on a retreat, you are building the muscle of sustaining attention. To sustain attention on the ever-changing nature breaks the, uh, breaks the uh, fascination. It breaks the fixation. It, 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 it breaks the spell where we start believing that things are true, that things are going to bring us well-being. When a little more uh, 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 disinterest and a little bit more uh, pulled away from us will bring us more well-being. If you have less or more traffic and you're okay either way, you're going to have a better trip than insisting on that you have the traffic the way you want it. And the same with food, with eating. You, you, of course, you're naturally going to try to choose food that you're going to enjoy. But sometimes it turns out well, and sometimes it doesn't, whether you're cooking it or someone else is preparing it for you. It works sometimes and not others. So then when there's spaciousness around that, rather than this, this on it, that creates, that creates the sense of well-being. It's great when it's good, and it's not so good now, but there'll be another meal. Do you see? It, it works both ways. Because if it's good, you don't have to go, oh, I've got to get every meal to be good. Oh, look at this. This is really great. I can really enjoy this. Because you're not needing the future to be just the same. There's a spaciousness around the experience in this way. So when that happens, we're able to uh, have a kind of uh, acceptance of life, a kind of embrace, a kind of, of living fully what's available here and now. Uh, Stanley Kunitz in uh, one of his poems, he describes this as being open to the next chapter in his book of changes. And so moment to moment, we can be open to the next chapter of changes, next chapter of change in our book of change. There's always something new. Many times, if we develop this spaciousness, this, this uh, meta-awareness, this meta-mindfulness around it, what we find is that there can be an ease within us that is independent of conditions. We move from being defined by conditions, by the pleasant or unpleasantness of conditions, to simply being characterized, that this moment is characterized by conditions, but it does not define us. In that moment, we move from a reactive mind state to a responsive mind state. We are 
free of the suffering that comes from conditions, from this demand around conditions. We have let go of that clinging that the Buddha describes in the second noble truth. To another poem here. This is a poem by Rumi talking about uh, the wisdom of accepting change. It's an excerpt from uh, a poem called A Necessary Autumn Inside Each. Inside each of us, there's continual autumn. Our leaves fall and are blown out over the water. A crow sits in the blackened limbs and talks about what's gone. Then your generosity returns, spring, moisture, intelligence, the scent of hyacinth and rose and cypress. And if you don't feel in yourself the freshness, weep and then smile. Don't pretend to know something you haven't experienced. There's a necessary dying, and then there is breathing again. Very little grows on jagged rock. Be ground, be crumbled, so wildflowers will come up where you are. You've been stony for too many years. Try something different. Surrender. So this is the, the teaching to surrender to the truth of Anicca to surrender to the truth of change. It's not, I repeat, it's not that you don't work towards what you believe in, to what you care about, to your causes, to your own comfort. It's not that, but it's a surrender of attitude, a surrender of the clinging, a demand that we can control at a certain level. So then what do we do if... um, if we accept the fact of the Buddhist teaching of Anicca, how do we orient? What, what is our structure? What is our framework of a reality to move? How do we organize our goals? How do we focus? What do we do with our time if everything is always changing? For people who get disillusioned in life, they do fall into cynicism. They fall into a kind of nihilism. Nothing really matters. First of all, we're going to die, so nothing matters there. Then secondly, you know, all these things that we're trying to do, they don't work out so well, and, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is not a very uh, wise response. That is not, there's not um, insight in that kind of a thing. Our lives matter. Our lives can be rich. Our moment-to-moment experience rich. It can have meaning. It can have a sense of purpose to it in the truth of, in the context of a Nietzsche. We see how exhausting it is to constantly want. So we start to cultivate not wanting. Not wanting so much. It's not that we give up caring about things but it's not organized around the wanting. We experience loss as, uh, as part of caring and not consider loss as, 
a defeat, but it's a price for caring. We, we, uh, we move from uh, uh, caring about the outcome to more about how we're meeting, what our goals are. We move so that the, the sense of the way we work towards our goals becomes at least equally, if not more important, than how the goals are met. T.S. Eliot at another place says to us, teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still. Teach us to care and not to care. This is the spaciousness around the caring so that we, we have an inner dignity based on the way we meet life rather than um, getting some little marks, some little gold stars because certain outcomes turned out well. The, the sense of well-being is because I know what I'm about and I can live it from what I'm about. And I'm suggesting to you that that is, in fact, the best way over a period of time to have outcomes that you would have occur. Over time, in any given moment, the obsession, the grasping, the clinging can work temporarily. But I have not seen that work over time I just have not seen it in any persons. And I've worked with lots of people, not just in teaching the Dharma, but in in my um, Life Balance Institute work. That over time, that sustained well-being comes from this, this stepping back a bit in this way. We know that when we have uh, unhealthy goals, that it doesn't work out very well. We've all had goals that were not very healthy, and we've had those outcomes. Everyone in here old, looks old enough to me to have had that experience for themselves and to know the truth of it. doesn't mean we still don't end up with unhealthy goals at times out of lust or anger or, uh, or just irritation, so we can get very unhealthy goals where we have bad feelings towards people we want to tell them off or, or cause them discomfort or, or out of lust we want something that is not really uh, uh, wholesome in that way. We also know that when we em- employ unskillful means towards bringing about a change, that those unskillful means end up not working out very well, although we still will do it. But gradually, we can learn more and more to not have goals that involve some sort of change that are not healthy. We learn. We learn from our experience because we're staying mindful. We learn from our experience that unskillful means just don't produce very good results. It's practical. It's not a belief. It's not a like, oh, I'm going to be punished for this in some other way. The punishment is in the very experience itself. So it's immediate, this knowing, this wisdom that can come. But even with healthy goals and using, uh, with healthy goals, if we're not being skillful in how we approach it, we end up and oftentimes in a a place that is not where we wish to be. We later have regret. We say that, oh, we've ended up in the wrong place. We've caused suffering for ourselves or caused suffering for another. So, uh, 
this stepping back, this willing to, oh, I don't know in this situation. It may be different than I thought it was. Oh, I'm, I've got this story going about this, but what if I just stop that story for a moment and just stay back here and go, yeah, but how am I really feeling right now? Oh, my mind may be agitated because of my story that I'm believing about this moment. But if I actually see how I am right now, I'm pretty good. My body's not hurting so much. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty refreshed in my mind. It's the story that's disturbing me because I'm wanting the story to be a certain way because of something I'm believing. But what if I don't worry so much about the story and stay with the actual felt sense of body-mind and heart in this moment? Much more spaciousness. And so we, we be careful not to make uh, change the enemy. A poem by uh, a good friend, Rob Cook. It's called Messengers. Messengers who deliver unwelcome news have never been popular. They may have gone many miles to get the message through, braving the elements and wild beasts. But does the king say, well done? Not likely. No, if the king doesn't like the message, it tends to be more like off with his head. It's an understandable reaction, I suppose, when we get a message that upsets us. It's tempting to pretend we didn't hear it, but we can't, not with the messenger standing there, his or her very presence an annoying reminder. These are my thoughts as I stand in front of the mirror, plucking out another gray hair. You know that change is going to come. We're always going to be involved in change. And uh, sometimes... The person that brings us the change is not the person, the, the message of change is not the person we would have preferred to deliver it to us. Sometimes the form that this message takes around change is not the form we would have it be. If we've been overworking and we get sick, we don't like the fact that the message was in the, was in the form of getting sick. But it's in that form, if we have... Uh, if uh, we are uh, pushing too hard in our relationship and the person starts withdrawing from us, that, the, the person withdrawing is a very unpleasant form to receive the message. But the message is still equally valuable. So the message itself is what we want to see. And the messages around change are that way. Oftentimes, change comes. The call for change comes in some form we don't particularly like. It's just the way it is. And often delivered through a person or a, a circumstance we don't like. If we get lost in our complaint about the person or the way the message was delivered, we miss the message, and therefore it will have to be delivered again. And oftentimes the ante gets increased, really increased. It can be true uh, if we're abusing food or uh, alcohol or drugs or sex. It can be true if the way we're trying to bring about change in a family dynamic or in a work situation or in, a, uh, in an institution. We, if, we, we, if we don't get the message, if we're not more interested in the message, then it, it, will, it will become a more intense message 
and may be delivered by even uh, more unpleasant circumstances. So there comes this need to uh, let go, to uh, come into um, to come into a new way of relating to change. I can remember um, uh, hearing for many years about a Nietzsche, and feeling as though I had um, um, an understanding of it, until one day I had a larger opening. And I realized, oh, I didn't understand much at all. And it's continued. On a physical level, when you're just, that is being body-mind, when you really are present in the moment, and when this happens, it's hard to say why it does, but you really have a direct experience of arising and passing that is so dramatic that it is temporarily disorienting because rather than perception seeming steady, it's just so fast. It's just so fast that you can't, you can't cling to it at all. You, there's a sense of, oh, I'm missing it. I'm missing it. That's actually the level that it's happening to us or an approximation of the level. It's even happening more fast than that. But at times in retreat, you can actually have a direct experience of this change in this way. Likewise, you can have a direct realization of, of the gestalt, of the wholeness of the truth of Anicca. And you really realize it's, it's not just the perception of change, but this whole thing is other than it appears in our regular perception mode. It becomes something different, and we are we are involved in a different kind of experience with this. It is a wilderness that we are entering into. That is something we have not known before. Uh, in non-retreat situations, again, people often experience this around a life-threatening disease or around having lost someone. That they are temporarily, they have a realization of this, but because it's not, it's not coming out of practice, and there's not a repetition. It's hard. It's hard for it to last. There can be a temporarily kind of wisdom that's really quite profound, but then it's lost again. It's this the mindfulness, this repetition, the staying with that really cultivates this deep-seated wisdom that starts to guide our life in this way. This is a poem by Wendell Berry called Exploring. And in it, he talks about going into a new space, a new understanding, a new way of being. And he calls that the wilderness. Always in the wilderness, when you leave familiar ground and step off alone into a new place, there will be, along with the feelings of curiosity and excitement, a little nagging of dread. There will be, along with the feelings of curiosity and excitement, a little nagging of dread. It is the ancient fear of the unknown. And it is your first bond with the wilderness you are going into. What you are doing is exploring. You're taking the first experience, not of the place, but of yourself in that place. You're undertaking the first experience, 
not of the place, but of yourself in that place. It is an experience of our essential loneliness, for nobody can discover the world for anybody else. It is only after we have discovered it for ourselves that it becomes a common ground and a common bond, and we cease to be alone. I bring up this uh, topic of Nietzsche in this way tonight, not lightly, because it is, and it's more profound level, like going into a wilderness. There is, um, uh, uh, sometimes on our evening classes, we don't necessarily evoke this large capacity of change as a possibility, but rather we point to more uh, immediate things and to going on to retreat for a deeper experience. But I would suggest to you that in your very life, just as it is, you could move into a, a whole new experience with knowing change. Really change your relationship to change. That you could uh, develop a, a kind of wisdom that might come uh, only with old age to some people, but at whatever age you are, this kind of wisdom can come. That a sense of uh, well-being in the face of change is available to each of us right now a little bit more than we know it. And with the consistency, quite a bit more. Just in our life the way we have it. Not that you have to come back here on every Monday night to get, uh, get another hit of inspiration. Although it certainly helps to have those hits of inspiration, let me tell you, from my own experience. But that it is available to us in the here and now. We underestimate our capacities. We don't commit ourselves to understanding change. We don't commit ourselves to being mindful of change, to be loving towards change in a way that would give us access to the very capacity that we have right now. I don't mean some new version of you, but the version of you that's here right now. It is to, to uh, access the very capacities we have right now we, we fail to do that repeatedly. So in a way, that's my challenge to you tonight, to get interested. I could have taken another subject and say the very same thing about the challenge, but in Nietzsche is one of the gateways to liberation. All three of the characteristics are gateways, and most people come in one of those three, through the dukkha or through the, the Nietzsche, the change, or through the not, one of those three that's the gateway into this profound relationship with Dharma, profound relationship, and a profound relationship, therefore, with well-being. So I have enjoyed this time with you, and I would have a sit-together for just a, a, a few seconds here, and we'll close with a little metta. I'd like to do a meta out loud as call and response, please. 
So there are four phrases that we use in the loving kindness meditation, the metta meditation, and everybody's encouraged to have their own phrases. And uh, the phrases I will be using are worked out while volunteering in a prison program. So I'll say a phrase out loud. I ask that you repeat it with some vigor. And then there'll be just a moment or two of silence to let you receive the loving kindness from those around you offering it. And then the next phrase. May you be safe from internal and external harm. May you be safe from internal May you have a calm, clear mind and a peaceful, loving heart. May you have a calm, clear mind and a peaceful, loving heart. May you be physically strong, healthy, and vital. May you experience love, joy, wonder, and wisdom in this life, just as it is. May you experience love, joy, wonder, and wisdom in this life, just as it is. May our practice this evening be a benefit to all beings. May we learn to be more skillful in relation to change. May we let change bring us to ever deeper wisdom. And this in turn be a benefit to every person we come in contact with. May all beings find the end of suffering. For your kind attention and uh, to remind you Jack will be here next week and um, drive safely home go to the right when you come out the driveway so that we honor our agreement with the city and also it's much safer thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.